I'd like to draw your attention this morning to Mark's Gospel, the uh, chapter 8, verses 13 through 21, which we just read a few moments ago. This is the passage that marks the end of Act 1 of the Gospel of Mark and then transitions us from Act 1, the whole first eight chapters of Mark, to Act 2, uh, which takes us to the cross. And it's an incredibly powerful passage because it raises for us the issue of trust, an issue that rests at the heart of the Christian faith and at the heart of your life and of my life. I want to set the scene. It's pretty straightforward. Jesus and his disciples have just gotten into a boat after an interaction with the Pharisees in verse 13. They get into the boat. And in verse 14, we're told that they had only brought, they'd forgotten to bring bread and only had one loaf of bread with them. It's an important detail. And then in verse 15, Jesus engages the disciples with this question or with this exhortation. Watch out, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And that figure of speech, it's a little ambiguous here in the original, uh, whether they were already discussing the fact that they had no bread or whether that figure of speech, that metaphor is what provoked the discussion. But in any case, in verse 16, it says they began or they were discussing, depending on how it's translated, with one another, the fact that they had no bread. And so this was the nature of their discussion. And then in verse 17, Jesus Knowing what they were talking about, presumably they weren't talking to him, but at numerous points in the Gospels, Jesus has a way of knowing what's going on inside of our hearts and our minds, which is true to this day, that he knows what we're thinking and what we're discussing. And so it says, aware of this, he then spoke back to them. And this is his response. He says, why are you discussing uh, about whether or not, the fa- or about the fact that you have no bread? And then he asks a series of questions, challenging questions, questions that I want, to be, I want to wrestle with here this morning. He says, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And then he asks, and do you not remember? It's as if Jesus is saying, look, you've been with me all this time and you've seen all the works that I have done. And that's really what the whole first act of the Gospel of Mark is all about. You've seen me heal the sick, cast out demons, cleanse lepers, enable the paralytic to stand up and take up his mat and walk. You've seen me calm the storm with a word. You've seen me raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. You've seen me walk on water. And Jesus then hones in in his response and focuses and sharpens his point by recalling his recent provision miracles. Remember the 5,000, he says. Remember the 4,000. All of these ate and were filled. And how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up afterwards? Twelve, they said, and seven. Do you remember that? I have power and I have authority I have no lack of resources. I can and I will provide for those who are in the boat with me, those who are united with me. Do you not yet understand? He finishes with that in verse 21. 
We all have real physical needs as humans. We also have felt needs and wants, and there's a blurry dividing line sometimes between the two in our lives. And God is our loving and compassionate creator, and he knows all of this about us. But the privilege and the call and the necessity of following Jesus is to be liberated from concerns, from consuming and distracting concerns about our own needs because Jesus is our Lord and our King and he can do anything and he lacks no resources and he is for us. The key feature of the Christian faith at the heart of it all is trust in him the one who has no lack of power, no lack of love, and no lack of resources. Karl Barth in his Dogmatics and Outlines said this. He said, Faith is the trust that we may hold to God, to his promise, and to his guidance. To hold to God is to rely on the fact that God is there for me and to live in this certainty. To live in this certainty. This is the promise that God gives to us. I am there for you. It's the end of the quote. That means that we can be at rest with regard to our own needs. In in the presence of Jesus, we need not fret about our perceived or even actual lack of resources. The fact that we have only one loaf of bread for a long journey, that we have only X number of dollars in the bank account, that we are uncertain about what career path we should choose, that we don't know how to handle our children or our spouse or our singleness. Faith in the face of all of these things remains in a posture of trust and expectation. The Lord will provide all that is needed. This is the insight that was given long ago to Abraham on the mountain in the land of Moriah after Yahweh provided a ram for him to sacrifice, substituting for Isaac, his son. And this is right now at this moment, at the middle of the Gospel of Mark, what the disciples in the boat with Jesus with only one loaf of bread are unable to see. Their fretting about bread was a denial of the reality that they they obviously knew. They had been there when Jesus took the loaves and fed the 5,000. They had been there when Jesus took the loaves. This was only a couple of days earlier, at the beginning of chapter 8, when Jesus took the loaves and fed the 4,000. They knew this, but in their moment of need, they forgot. And how true is that pattern for you and for me as well? We, we know the power of God to provide, to care for, to heal, but when we end up in the boat with only one loaf, whatever that means in our particular circumstances, we quickly forget. And we start to fret and to blame and to worry. It's just our nature to do so. And these responses in our own lives, just like the disciples' responses in the boat in this moment when they begin to fret about their their lack of bread, are a denial of reality, of what is genuinely true, what is more real than our circumstantial evidence. The God of the universe, the creator, who walks on water and who calms the storm, is for us. He's on our side He's in the boat with us, and there is no lack in him, in resources, in power, or in goodwill and love toward us as his creatures. And faith, 
Faith is what grasps this reality, that rests in this reality, and banks on this reality in any and every circumstance that we encounter, however desperate or dire it may be. And that faith produces this genuine peace, which Paul says is a peace that surpasses all understanding, able to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The other alternative is fretting, stewing, anxiety, worry, and fear. Or to say in unbelief with the disciples earlier in Mark chapter 4, when they're on the stormy sea in the boat and Jesus is asleep in the stern, Teacher, they cry out. Do you remember this? Do you not care that we are perishing? I want to invite you to think about your life today. At this moment, wherever you are, and we're all in very different places, there are, are there aspects of your life right now about which Jesus, your loving Savior and Lord, would say to you, perhaps with a, a twinge of exasperation as we see here in Mark 8, but also with that characteristic tenderness of a loving, compassionate, self-giving king. Do you not yet understand I am the Lord, the one through whom and for whom all things were made. I can multiply the loaves. Believe in me. Trust me. Rest in me. This is the call. This is the privilege of faith. I want to be clear for just a moment and say that At the same time, just because Jesus can do all of those things, that does not, of course, mean that he will do them in each particular circumstance in our lives or instance. And and if we believe and demand that the things that we think we need are satisfied, we will be sorely disappointed in human life and might well end up losing the faith that we have. Genuine faith rests and finds peace in the knowledge that Jesus can do all these things. And not in the fact that he must do or will do these things. When we look back at history and we look at those who've run the race before us, we're overwhelmed with testimonies of the faithful followers of Jesus, our King, meeting challenging circumstances and at times bitter ends dying from disease, suffering at the hands, unjustly at the hands of their enemies. In Paul's case, suffering from hunger and thirst and shipwrecks, being skipped over unjustly for a promotion, perhaps because of their Christian profession, wrestling with unmet desires and so on. This is a part of the fabric of the community of faith. John the Baptist was beheaded. Paul, extremely challenging circumstances in his own life. And we will not be insulated from these things as followers of Jesus in this world. And most of us could say, yes, that's obvious. We know that from looking around at our own experience. But in all of this reality, we endure, or we are called to endure, trusting the providence of our good, loving, and all-powerful God who is directing the course of history and the course of our own individual lives to a good and perfect end. And clinging in the midst of those moments to 
the Lord, who is all-powerful, and to the fact that he can, like he said about his own trial in Gethsemane, at any moment call 12 legions of angels and change the circumstances. That is fundamental to our faith. He is able to do so. But of course, there are realities in which he doesn't. And the the question that that life experience thrusts before us is, how are we going to respond in those moments? How can we have the kind of faith that Jesus is calling his disciples in the boat in Mark 8 to have in the midst of moments when it seems that God doesn't provide? And that's a deep question of life and faith as we wrestle. But underneath that question, there is this call to see that the presence and provision of God in his presence, the Spirit of God, and in the cross of Jesus, has met our deepest and most significant need for all of time. And to build on that reservoir of goodwill that we find in the cross of Christ in such a way that when we're in these other circumstances, that we can still hold fast the good confession of faith. A little bit like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying to Nebuchadnezzar as they're about to get thrown into the fiery furnace, look, our God can do these things. And that's the heart of Christian faith. Our God can. Our God is able. Our God is the provider and the creator. And there's nothing that he can't do. But even if he doesn't, O king, we will not bow down to you. We don't know his inscrutable purposes in our particular circumstances, but we know that his providence is for our good and we will remain faithful to him and faithful to that true confession that he can do all things in the midst of whatever trials that he in his providence has us walking through in the present. So looking at Jesus with that deep and abiding reality of faith, we can have tremendous peace in the midst of our trials, even if and as they persist day by day. Now, why is Jesus driving this point home? Why is he pushing so hard on his disciples in the boat about faith at this particular moment in the gospel? And there's an important lesson here that I want us to see. It's it's actually no surprise that this is happening right here in Mark chapter 8. Jesus presses this point home about trusting his ability to provide, about seeing him and taking off the blindness of unbelief and seeing him for who he is because he is about to reveal the nature of his messianic vocation to his followers. He hammers home to them in this moderately confrontational way in the boat the fact that he can do anything and that he can provide for them, the fact that he's given plenty of evidence for that up to this point in their experience with him. It's as if he's saying, come here, guys, let's talk. You really need to know this, especially because you don't know what is coming. You don't know what I'm going to do next. You don't don't know where this unexpected path is about to take us. And I need you to know, before I unveil this next little bit of the story to you, before I show you what we're going toward, I need you to know, to look at me, look at me in the eyes, I need you to know that I'll provide for you. Full stop. And so he exposes that, that lingering unbelief in their hearts because he's about to say, I'm going to the cross. 
I'm going to die. I'm not going to win the victory like you thought I was. I'm going to the cross. And not only that, but he says in verse 34, if you want to be my disciples, then you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me to the cross. I'm not just going there by myself, but I'm calling you there as well. My kingdom, the, the true life that the God of the universe is offering to all humanity is about service. It's about self-sacrificial love. It's about pouring one's life out for others, and I lead you on that path. And as I do so, I need you desperately to know that I can multiply the loaves and provide for all of your needs. I need you to remember my power up to this point in your experience with me. I can change your circumstances from those of apparent defeat to those of radiant victory in an instant, in a moment. I can do that. But that's not typically the way that I operate. I'm going to the cross, to the place of service, to the place of love. And that's not always a comfortable place to be. Actually, quite to the contrary, that is to our flesh and our propensity towards self-preservation, a very uncomfortable place to be. But I'm going there and I'm calling you there too because this is true life. And whoever wants to save his life, he says, later in this chapter, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's, We'll save it. This is the way to truly come to life. Think about this for just a moment. If, if you and I spend our lives concerned about our own needs, which is such a natural thing to do, we're all hardwired in this way. And if we don't know how to trust in the provision of our Lord for those needs, then how will we ever follow him to the cross? We can't do it. I remember having a conversation a number of years ago with a, a non-Christian woman. We were chatting about something, and I got an opportunity in that conversation just naturally to talk to her a little bit about this call to the cross that Jesus gives us in Mark 8. And I explained that this is a call to lay down our lives in self-sacrificial love for the sake of people around us. And she stopped me at the end, and I think it was probably the first time that she'd really heard somebody articulate that. And she said... Well, if you're called to lay down your life for others, then who's going to take care of you? It was a wonderful and insightful comment. That is, if you give your life away in this radical way, who's going to ensure that your needs are met, that you'll be provided for? And I, I love that this chapter in Mark's Gospel, when Jesus for the first time reveals to his disciples the nature of his messianic calling and vocation, and the nature of their calling as his followers, which is defined by the cross, that he answers emphatically that woman's question. I will provide for you. I've got you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to follow me down this path of love. Don't let your self-oriented concerns lead to a constricted, small, and ultimately unsatisfying way of life. But by faith and trusting all of your needs to me, enter the expansive, counter, uh, um, you know, uh, paradoxical, not intuitive, but so desperately true way of true life to which I am leading you in the cross. Trust me. Lean into me. Remember all that I have done and can do and follow me. Of course, this isn't easy for any of us to walk down this road with Jesus. Even after the lesson that Jesus gives, the poignant one, you can imagine the sense there's almost a tension in this encounter in the boat that ends with Jesus' question, do you not yet understand? But even after that pointed lesson, 
And then after the clear unveilings of Jesus' vocation that he goes on to at the end of chapter 8, and then in chapter 9 again, and then in chapter 10, these, these, after Jesus predicts his own death in chapter 9, his disciples start arguing along the way about who is the greatest. And in chapter 10, after Jesus tells him that he's going to go to the cross, James and John's mom comes to Jesus and is like, look, can you guarantee that my boys get to sit at the right and the left and be the big ones in his new kingdom? And in both instances, Jesus has to stop and say, look, you're not getting it. True life comes not by seeking the highest place, but becoming like this little child. Not by being the one who's served, but by becoming the servant, the least, the last. Jesus even says the slave of all. This is the way to live. Here's the point of all of this. Apart from faith and the power of Jesus as the all-capable provider for our lives, do you believe that he will provide for you? Do you believe that he can provide? And that whatever he does provide will be adequate to face whatever circumstances he brings to you? Apart from that faith, we cannot walk with Jesus into the beautiful, full, cross-shaped life of the kingdom. That's the point of this passage at this turning point in the gospel. He knows what's coming. And he says, I need you to trust me. I need you to know who I really am. And I don't think it's any accident that after he unveils the vocation of the cross, the first thing that happens in chapter 9 is the Mount of Transfiguration. I need you to know my glory, my radiance, my power, which gets unmistakably displayed before Peter and James and John at the mountaintop, having just displayed for you, just just unveiled to you the mysterious and enigmatic fact that the king of glory is going to become the one who suffers. I need you to know who I am, to trust in my majestic power, my gracious and certain provision, in order that you might walk down the, li- the path of life to which I am calling you, the path of being least and being a servant and being poured out in love. Progress along that path is impossible to the degree that we are obsessed with fretting about our own needs. He holds us. He holds you today. The one who raised the dead, who fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, cast out demons. He holds you and he cares for you. So you now are free to stop worrying and obsessing and being anxious and stewing about your own needs. And instead, by faith, being assured that your needs will be met by his gracious care in your life. Met fully. You're liberated to follow your crucified king with reckless abandon into the fullness of the life of love. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the freedom that you've been freed from fear. You've been freed from self-centeredness. You've been liberated from sin, which is curved in, being curved inward upon ourselves. And you have been embraced fully by divine love in order that you can begin to embody the love with which you have been loved. Do you not yet understand? My heart and prayer is that we would understand this lesson of Jesus. 
that he who created the world and all of its resources is our intimate, cosmic, loving Savior who knows the very hairs on our head, the words on our tongue, the thoughts in our hearts, and of course the needs of our bodies. May our obsession over self-preservation evaporate in the heat of this divine love with which we have been loved. That we might become inflamed with love for him and love for our neighbor in practical, small, and real ways day by day. That's the Christian life. Do you not yet understand?